second song that we are going to look at today is the song of Mary, our second song of Advent. It's, that's our Advent theme. We looked at the song of Zacharias last week. This week we're going to look at the song of Mary. It's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the inspired utterance that you gave to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Lord, as she traveled to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was carrying the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. And Father, you moved on her by the Holy Spirit, and she uttered these words and proclaimed this prophetic song. And here we read it today. We hear it today as a word from God for us, even in our day. Father, take this word, let it be meat to us today. Let it teach us and inform us. Let it provoke us. Let it strengthen us, God, to stand in the battle, to stand, Lord, as the world around us assails your church and your people, as sin itself which has brought death to this world. And death is still at work. Father, let this word, and let your word, let all of your words, encourage us and strengthen us to stand. And to know that whatever happens in this world, Jesus is Lord. Death has been conquered. Your people are victorious because Christ has won the victory. We thank you for that, Father. We celebrate that because you have come and you are victorious. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is Mary's song. If you remember, she sang this song when she went to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth, remember, had been barren. She was advanced in age, and her and Zacharias had long given up on having children. And when the angel comes to Mary, and Mary is wondering, how is this going to happen? How am I, a virgin, going to be able to bear this child? The angel informs her that even your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant right now. And so Mary travels to the house of Elizabeth and Zacharias, and she arrives, and the Bible says that when Mary walks into the home, the child in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leapt. And it says that the Spirit of God moved on Elizabeth, and the Spirit of God moved on John the Baptist in the womb of Mary, because They knew that the Messiah, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, had walked into that room being carried 
in the womb of his mother. If you just think about that, that is a pretty amazing thing. We read that story and we just think about two pregnant women and, um, you know, maybe Elizabeth was excited and maybe, you know, there was a little bit of movement there, you know, but certainly it wasn't like John the Baptist. How could he have known that Jesus came into his presence? Well, he did know. This is one of the reasons... This is one of the reasons when we baptize babies, we baptize in believing that at the youngest of ages, God can work and God can move. And they are conscious of much more than we might think that they are by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. And when we read these accounts in the Scripture, when we read these things that are so easy for us to just read over and not really ponder, not really meditate on, not really think about what's happening here. I want you to think about what's, what's transpired here. When these two women come together and these two children in utero meet one another and the Spirit of God does a work there that causes something real to happen. And this young child, this baby, this infant in the womb was created by God, called by God to be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of his mother. And when he comes into that house, the atmosphere changes. Advent is the celebration of his coming. When the Lord comes, things change. And I don't want you to think about the coming of the Lord as just a, a past historical event. And I don't want you to think about the coming of the Lord as a future physical event that will happen one day. I want you to think about the coming of the Lord as a present reality in your life and in this world today. Because that's what it is. Advent is not the celebration of a historical event. It's not the celebration of a future event. Yes, we remember. We remember one and we look to another. But Advent is the celebration of the God who is with us. He has come and he's not gone away. And that's something important for us to remember. Mary's song is a song of hope. It's a song of faith in the God who has come. And when she walked into Elizabeth's house, that baby in Elizabeth's womb knew that God had come. And Elizabeth knew that God had come. And Mary knew that God was present with her. And she uttered the words of the song we just read. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. Let's look at this song, this prophetic utterance that Mary gives that day. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Think about those words for a moment. My soul magnifies the Lord. Does your soul magnify the Lord? You know, it is easy for us to find ourselves in situations where our soul is not magnifying the Lord. Our souls are easily consumed with situations and circumstances all around us or maybe happening in the midst of our own lives. And we get so consumed by those situations and those circumstances that our soul stops magnifying the Lord. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Our soul, that means our mind, our will, our emotions should declare the greatness. That's what this word magnify. When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's saying, my soul declares the greatness of the Lord, the greatness of my God. 
We are living in a world right now. We are living in a nation right now. We're living in a city, in a region right now in which the Lord is not being magnified. Every one of us are dealing with various circumstances of varying degrees that distract us from magnifying the Lord. And we're not to let that happen because He is worthy to be magnified. His greatness is to be declared always because His greatness is never diminished. His glory is never diminished. My circumstance, your circumstance, does not diminish His greatness or His glory. What's happening in our nation, what's happening all around us in the the demoralization and the destabilization that's taking place in our nation has not and will never diminish His greatness and His glory. He is the Lord over all of those things. And He knows exactly what's happening because He is orchestrating everything. And it doesn't matter if we understand that. It does not matter if we can or cannot wrap our little minds around that. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we know who He is, that He is the Lord, that He is the Sovereign, and that He knows not only everything that we know, He knows everything we don't know. And so we look to Him and we trust in Him Because he alone knows the things we want to know, the things we feel we need to know, but he doesn't always give us all the information that we're seeking. But he has given us this. He has come. He has revealed himself. He has manifest himself. He was born. He lived. He died. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day and he has ascended to glory on high and he sits enthroned and he rules and he reigns. We know that. So we trust that in the midst of everything else we don't know. In the midst of everything else we can't see and we can't discern. He has made himself known. He has come. And so we look to him. We fix our eyes on him. That's what Mary did. She couldn't understand how what the angel told her was going to come to pass. She heard the words of the angel, but she had no way to wrap her mind around that. She had no reference point by which to understand what was going to happen to her. So she just trusted God. That's what she did. She trusted God. And she declares here, my soul magnifies. My soul declares the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. We are to rejoice in God, our Savior. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Philippi that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Let's just stop there for a moment and think about that. Don't just think about what it says. Think about what it does not say. It does not say rejoice in the Lord always when you have reason to rejoice. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord always when you feel like it. It doesn't say rejoice in the Lord always when life is everything you want it to be. No, it says rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't give us any qualifier after that. But Paul does add to that. He adds emphasis to that. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice, period. What are we to do? Well, the Bible says we are to rejoice. Yeah, but Pastor Jeff, I don't feel like rejoicing. The Bible didn't say rejoice if you feel like it. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you're wondering if he's serious, and again I say rejoice. Now, I know as well as anybody, that's not, that's not easy. And it's much easier said than done, but the Bible doesn't 
say to us, do the things that are easy, and the things that are not easy, don't worry about them. No. We obey. And we look to him, and we trust in his grace, grace to obey, grace to rejoice. Lord, I know what your word says. I don't feel like rejoicing. I confess that sin to you, and I ask that you would give to me grace, grace to rejoice, and more grace to rejoice again, and again, and again, and again. The joy of the Lord is our strength. This is why we are commanded to rejoice always. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Our ability to rejoice in God is our ability to guard and to protect our joy and so preserve his strength. It's not your strength, it's his strength. When you are weak, he is strong. In fact, when you are weak, that's not a bad place to be as long as you realize that he is strong. Because he can carry you better than you can carry yourself. He can take you places you could never take your, yourself because you're not strong enough, but he is. Luke chapter 1, verse 48, Mary continues, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. There is not one shred or iota of arrogance in this statement that Mary makes. This is a statement declaring the glory of God. To God be all the glory. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. God noticed. That's what this word regarded means. It means God noticed. God paid attention to the lowly or the humble state of Mary because God's regard for Mary because he noticed her because he paid attention to her because in his grace he chose her she declares that all generations will call her blessed not because of her but because of him because of what she carried because of the gift she was given, because of the privilege God gave to her to be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. God notices. God pays attention to our lowly, our humble state as well. It's not just Mary. There was nothing special about Mary except God chose her. God knows our own lowly estate he knows our humble condition, and he pays attention. He notices. God knows our state. He knows our condition concerning all things, even the things you may think he doesn't know, he knows. When he doesn't answer the way you want him to answer, he knows. He's paying attention. He notices. When you feel like he doesn't hear, he doesn't see, trust me, he knows. He notices. He's paying attention. He is. All generations may not call you blessed, but whether you realize it or not, you are blessed in Christ. You are. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In him you lack nothing that pertains to life and godliness. Nothing. You may lack what you want. You may lack what you need. And it's very possible that what you believe you need is not really what you need. It's what you feel you need. God is never late. He's never early, but he's never late. We don't mind God being early, do we? We never say, gosh, Lord, you are really early in giving me that blessing. 
Gosh, Lord, you, you were really early answering that prayer. Could you have waited a little bit longer? I hate it when you're early. We never say that. Why not? But boy, we say, God, you're late. God, you, do you not know, God, what's going on with me? You, do you not see? Do you not hear? God, you're late. No, he's not late. He's not. And if you think I'm preaching to you, just know I'm preaching to myself before I'm preaching to you right now. He's not late. He's never late. You're blessed because God has regarded your lowly state. And he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save you and to redeem you and to make you his very own special treasure. That's what the Bible says you are. You are his very own special treasure. Luke chapter 1, verse 49, Mary goes on and she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me and Holy is his name. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. The God we serve is called the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty. He is almighty. He has done and he is doing great things for you, for his people. He has never stopped doing great things. He will never stop doing great things for he is mighty. And this is who he is. He is the mighty God who only does great and wondrous things. There is nothing God does that is not great and wondrous. It doesn't matter how small we may think it is. It doesn't matter how large we may think it is. He is the Lord God Almighty, and there is nothing He does that is not great and wondrous. And Mary says, For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Colossians 1.29. To this end, Paul writes, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. It's not just God who's out there a million miles away somewhere looking through his binoculars at us inspecting us every so often. No, it's the God who is with us. It's the God who is present, who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. Paul says, this God, it is this God in me working mightily. I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me, which works in you mightily. This is the God we serve. This is our God who has done mighty things for us and is doing mighty things for us. This is almighty God who is holy. Holy is his name. Holy is his name, Mary declares. And so we are to be holy as he is holy, the Bible. Why are we to be holy? Because he is holy. We are holy because he counts us holy, not because you and I are holy, not because we can behave holy enough for him, because we can't. We can't be good enough. We can't behave well enough. We can't become holy enough for him to finally accept us. No, we are made accepted in the beloved. He, in fact, the scripture says, he has made us accepted in the beloved. This is his grace. You are counted holy by God's grace. 
You are counted holy, not because you are holy, but because Christ is holy. And because God has counted you in Christ holy. He looks past your sin and my sin. He looks past our shortcomings that are are more than we could ever imagine. He looks past that and he looks to the blood of his son. Oops. He looks to the blood of his son. And when he looks to the blood of his son, he sees us as holy. Because his son is holy. And the blood that his son shed has taken away our sin. And we are washed and we are covered and we are clothed in a robe. A robe of righteousness. The blood of Jesus. Holy is his name. Because of his grace given to us in Christ, we too are called holy. So we are to live holy lives before him. How we live does matter. Because he has counted us and he has called us holy. How we live matters because he has saved us from our sin and from our death and from darkness. And he has translated us into his marvelous light. And though we were once darkness, now we are light in the Lord. Therefore, we are to walk as children of light. How do children of light walk? They walk in holiness. That's how they walk. And they walk in holiness by the grace of God. And when they fall down, they get up by the grace of God. And when they struggle, they don't grow weary in doing good. They continue by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, even with our falling down, with with our struggles, with our temptations, with our failures, even by the grace of God, he still counts us holy. Mary says in his mercy, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. To generation. This is something that the church lacks. We live in the present. We judge everything by the present or the immediate past or the immediate future. We never complain because God is early, but we always complain because He's late. Because we judge everything by our present situation, our present circumstances. But when you read the scripture, And I mean, when you read the whole counsel of God, what you see in God's counsel is that God is always working in the present for the future. God has worked in the past, not just for that day or tomorrow, but for the generations that are coming, for the thousands of generations that are coming. That's what the scripture says. And we say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, that's just hyperbolic language. It's not really, it doesn't really mean a thousand generations. Well, you can believe that if you want. But I'm going to take the scripture at what he says. There's no reason for me to say or to believe that, that, that it doesn't mean that. Why, why would I not believe that? I believe that it says that the... the The iniquity of the fathers is passed down to the third and fourth generations. We believe that. And we stop there and we don't read the rest of the scripture where it says, but to those who love me, to those who love me, to those who fear me, to those who will walk in my ways, to thousands, plural, thousands of generations. What's to thousands, to thousands, not thousands of people, but thousands of generations. What is, what is there to thousands of generations? The blessing of the Lord. The blessing of the Lord is to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's God's promise to those who love him. 
Mary says here, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary wasn't just thinking about her moment, her nine months to deliver a baby. Mary was thinking about that baby in her womb and what it meant to generation upon generation upon generation. And we are to live our lives not just thinking about our present time, our short window of visitation here on this earth. We're to live our lives. We're to walk out our faith thinking about, working for, praying for, and believing for the generations that will come after us. It's why we take a stand for righteousness. It's why we are not afraid to be called or spoken of evil by the world. Who cares what the world thinks? We better worry about what God thinks. We better stop worrying about how it's going to affect our little time in our moment, in our visitation here on this earth. We better start thinking about how it's going to affect our children and our grandchildren and their children and the generations that will come after. That's the way God has written his word. That's what we see in God's word. That's why when, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they fall in sin and God comes to them and God pronounces the judgment and he says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Well, we all know that prophecy, that prophetic word, that proclamation by God to that serpent spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it would be 4,000 plus years before that prophecy was fulfilled. But it was just as relevant the moment it was spoken by God, even though it took 4,000 years to fulfill. And God wasn't idle for 4,000 years. He was working constantly. He didn't just come in the garden to Adam and Eve after they sinned. He came to his people constantly through history. That's why when we celebrate Advent, it's not just a past and a future event that we're celebrating. It is the ever-present event of God coming to his people. When you pray for healing, you're praying that God will come to his people. You're praying that Christ will come and answer, and he does. When we stand up for righteousness and we feel the heat of the world who is making fun of us and calling us names and trying to intimidate us to compromise our truth, it is the Lord who has come to us to strengthen us, to fill us by his spirit, to give us the courage to stand knowing that it doesn't matter what happens to us in our lifetime. What we're doing is not just for us. It is for the generations to come. And this is what Mary is declaring here. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7 says. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, verse 10 says. The fear of the Lord... The mercy of the Lord is on those who fear Him. For those who fear Him, His mercy extends from generation to generation. We should be conscious of that. We should live that way. We should pray that way. We should work with, with all the work that we can as He works in us mightily. The mercy of the Lord is his compassion. In the Hebrew, the word mercy, the word translated mercy is most closely related to and is very often, in fact, translated loving kindness. His mercy, his loving kindness is on those who fear him from generation to generation. The promises of God are not just to you. But they are to your children and to your children's children from generation to generation. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but those things which have been revealed to us belong to us and to our children and to our children's children. 
to thousands of generations. God doesn't always show us what we want to see. God has secrets that he keeps from us. Not to harm us. But because he's God. And he's the author. It's his story. He gives us what we need to know. He even gives us things we probably don't need to know. But whatever is kept secret from us, God has a reason for it. And we're not to be focused on the secret. We're to be focused on the one who possesses the secret. We're to trust him. And if he says, I'm not going to tell you, then we trust him that he's got a reason for not telling us. That doesn't mean we can't pray. That doesn't mean we can't petition heaven. That doesn't mean we don't fast. That doesn't mean we don't go to him continually in faith. It doesn't mean that. But if God doesn't give us the answer we want, if God still doesn't reveal the information we want, we don't stop trusting him. We keep trusting him. We keep loving him. We keep believing and knowing that he has not stopped loving us. The promises of God are not just to you, but they are to your children and to your children's children from generation to generation. Don't forget that. Don't just live your life for your time now. Live your life for the generations that are coming after. Because it matters. What you do now matters to those coming after us. That's why what we do now is so important. Luke Chapter 1, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. God will show his strength. God continually is showing his strength. We just don't have eyes to see it. We don't have ears to hear it. We don't have hearts and minds to perceive it. But it's all around us. He will move in and he will move through the lives of his people and their situations and their circumstances. We've all, we can all recall things in our life and say, man, now I can see how God was working. But you can remember that you couldn't see it in the moment. So don't ever believe that God is not working. He is. Don't ever think that God is not showing his strength because he is. Whether you can see it, whether you can feel it, he is showing his strength. God hates pride. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. God scatters the proud in the imagination of their heart, Mary says here. In their haughty, self-righteous attitudes, God scatters them. The psalmist asks this question of God, why does the wicked prosper? Because David saw, the psalmist saw, the wicked prospering, the unrighteous never being brought to justice. And he asked God. And God says, they're like, the, they're like the grass that wilts. They're like what you throw in the fire and it just, it's gone. Don't worry about the wicked, God says. God will deal with the wicked. Instead of looking at the wicked, instead of looking at all that we call unfair or unjust or unrighteous and wonder, God, why aren't you doing anything? Well, look to God. Give those things to God. God will judge. God will judge this world. And God help them when he comes to do it. And we should be more focused on that. There is a righteous anger that we can have, but there's also... 
a very unrighteous anger that we can have. And we're not to have unrighteous anger. We're to see people who have rejected God. We're to see people who are not just rejected God, who are indifferent to God, but people who are actually living and doing things in opposition to God. And we look at the person who's just indifferent to God one way, but we see people who are promoting lifestyles and things that are blatantly sinful, blatantly destructive. We look at them another way. But the person who's just indifferent to God, who's a nice guy, is just as lost as the person over here who seems to be in opposition, pressing and pushing to destroy the very things God has has established. They're, They're both just as lost. Because they're both blind. They're both in darkness. We're not to have pity on one and hate the other. We're to pray for both of them because they're both in a state of peril apart from Jesus. And the devil loves it when you got nice people who are just indifferent to God and we think, oh, well, that person's okay because they're a nice person. No, they're not okay. If they don't have Jesus, they're in peril. They're in as much peril, maybe even more peril than the person over here who's actively pushing against. And, and, and because it's very likely that that person could come to a point in time of their life, a point of crisis, when, they, when, when nothing works for them. The person over here who's just indifferent, who's self-sufficient and everything's good, that person, without a disruption, without God intervening in their life, that person will just go down the primrose path right to hell. So it's not one that we, you know, we can tolerate this person, we can even love this person, but, man, these people over here, they're disgusting to me. No, we should pray for both of them. We should love both of them enough to tell them the truth and to do it in love without compromise. Because God, God will scatter the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Luke chapter 1, verse 52. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. This is linked. When he talks about the proud in the imagination of their hearts, this is the people who proclaim themselves to be mighty. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Mary historically and prophetically proclaims this truth. The Lord God Almighty has noticed, notice that in the past tense, the Lord God Almighty has put down. He has. It's in the past tense. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, and in doing so, he has exalted the lowly. This is what the Apostle Paul is making known when he writes this in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Paul writes, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." He uses the lowly to bring down, to bring to nothing the mighty. This is the season of Advent, the celebration of his coming. And if you think about it, there is nothing more lowly than a newborn babe lying in a manger in a stable. That lowly babe has put down the mighty from their thrones. He will continue to do so until he comes again to put his final enemy under his feet. We pray this every week in our prayers concerning how God moves the hearts of kings as he wills. He brings about the rise and the fall of nations as he makes manifest his own rule and his own reign over all things. As Benjamin Franklin so aptly pointed out when the Continental Congress was arguing about 
writing the Constitution and the, the founding documents of our nation. Franklin points out, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the Father's will, how can a nation be birthed apart from his providence? And Franklin realized, if this great exercise of forming a nation, do we think that God is not involved in this? The Bible says not even a sparrow, the the least of birds, they're, they're everywhere. Gold is valuable because it's not as prevalent as dirt. So no one gets dirt and collects it because they think it's valuable, because it's just dirt. That's kind of what Jesus was, was doing when he used the sparrow. Just a real common bird. They're everywhere. But yet Jesus said, not even a sparrow, not one single sparrow can fall to the ground apart from my Father's will. Not apart from my Father's knowledge. There's a difference. Not even a sparrow can fall to the ground. Not one of them apart from my Father's will. You need to pay attention to that, church, because that's a truth that we need to latch on to. Things happen for a reason. God is in control of those things. He exalts the lowly, as the Apostle Peter writes. Submit yourselves in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, that he may lift you up In due time, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. Mary uttered these words at a time when the mighty Roman Empire ruled the world. The very world the Savior would be birthed into. And God has put down the mighty, the proud, the arrogant, the self-exalting from their thrones. But he exalts the lowly. Mary is speaking prophetically of what would transpire as a result of the Savior's birth. The Lord's conquest of the mighty has marched on throughout history and it continues today. When you think about the words of the Apostle Paul that we read from 1 Corinthians, he said, you know your calling, brother, not many wise among you, not many mighty. Do you know that in the early church, At the birth of Christianity, the world, the mighty Roman Empire, and the people of the Roman Empire considered Christians atheists because they only believed in one God, a theist. They only believed in one God, which was unheard of in the Roman Empire because everybody believed in multiple gods. They were a cult because they didn't believe like everybody else believed. They were weird. They only believe in one God. And besides that, do you notice who their followers are? They're all a bunch of uneducated people. They're like a bunch of fools. There's no one mighty. There's no one powerful. I mean, the movers and the shakers of the world, they're not Christians. It's a bunch of losers who are Christians. That was the attitude in the world at that time. But do you know what God did? God took the mightiest empire to ever rule the world and he brought it literally to its knees to bow before Jesus through the very people Paul described. It didn't stay that way because the apostle Paul gets arrested and sent to Rome because he appealed to Caesar and guess whose household he ends up witnessing to? Caesar's. And so, to the very highest levels of the Roman Empire, the gospel from those foolish, unwise, weak, poor Jews in the Middle East there, that gospel has traveled and now is in the very household of Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. 
God took the lowly, he exalted it, and he brought down the mighty on their thrones. That's literally what happened. It's literally why we are here today having church, talking about these things. Don't think for one moment God is not still doing that. Don't think for one moment that that's what happened 2,000 years ago, but God's not doing that anymore. God is doing it right now. He's doing it right now. He may be bringing down one nation, but he's raising up another. You may look at this group of people just like the world looks at the church and they think we're a bunch of rubes and a bunch of hicks and we are so far behind the time because we don't even recognize same-sex marriage. We don't even believe, we still believe that gender is based on biology. I mean, how stupid can they be? I've had people tell me that. I had a nurse practitioner tell me that. You are just ignorant. You don't even understand gender. Okay. But I do understand the Bible. And that's where I'm going to get my definition of gender. God has put down the mighty, the proud, the arrogant. Mary is speaking prophetically here. And this is why, above all others, the Christian has reason to hope, reason to rejoice, reason to trust and obey all that Christ has commanded. You are to do so knowing that God has put down the mighty from their thrones and he exalts the lowly. He will not stop until his very last enemy, which is death, is under his feet. He has never stopped. He will never stop. Luke chapter 1, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Remember, God regards. He takes notice of the lowly. He takes notice of those of low estate, those who are hungry for him, hungry for his righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus, the son of Mary, proclaimed to those meek and hungry, listening to his words. In what we call the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says these words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you're worried about your inheritance, just hold on. God says, I'm going to give you the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's a promise. God knows your hunger. He knows your thirst. And if it's for him, he has promised that he will fill you. If it is for the things of this world, no matter how full, no matter how rich you may think you are, he will send you away empty. He has sent the rich away empty. That sounds unkind. It sounds unloving. Why would God do that just because someone is rich? And the answer is he doesn't. He doesn't do that because someone is rich. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin to love your riches. It's a sin to love your money, to depend on them more than you love and depend upon God. It is God alone who gives men the power to even create wealth. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil. I don't know about you, but I hear this misquoted all the time. Well, you know, money's the root of all evil. No, actually, it's not. I mean, people say it all the time. I mean, they quote it like they're, they're quoting the Bible and they don't quote the Bible. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself. Jesus teaches us you cannot serve God and riches, for you will love the one and hate the other, Matthew 6, 24. The love of money, that is the root of all evil. Whether men formulate their thoughts in this way or not, it's the love of money that is actually hatred of God. This is why the rich will be sent away empty. It's the rich whose love is sinfully misplaced. Don't misplace your love. Don't think you can love Riches and love God. Don't think you can love your sin and love God all at the same time. Jesus said you can't do it. It doesn't really matter what I say. What matters is what Jesus says. And Jesus said you can't do that. You're going to love one and hate the other. You might say with your mouth you love the other, just like 
we saw, we, we, this is what's been happening in our community. You know, the Taylor Pride people, the people of the LBGTQ community <laughs> profess that they love God. But we know they do not because they love their sin more than they love God. And they say God's word is not true. And they say, well, God didn't really mean that. And God says that, that that doesn't matter anymore. No, you don't. You, aren't, you don't have the position and the privilege to tell God what he says or to tell God what he really means or what he doesn't mean anymore. You, we don't have the right to do that. We don't stand in judgment of God in his word. We, we stand to be judged by God in his word. This is why Jesus tells the truth. Love for anything that results in our rejection or our indifference or our disobedience to God and His Word is sin. Rich or poor, you cannot love sin, whatever it may be, and love God. Rich or poor, you cannot serve sin, whatever it may be, and serve God. You will love the one and hate the other. That is what Jesus says. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The second, he said, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. The love for sin above the love for God has been on full display in recent weeks in our own community here. Men love their sin, and that love for sin, they reject God and they reject his truth. Even the most fundamental truths that have been accepted and taken for granted since the very creation of the world. Truths that are non-negotiable. Truths like, like in the beginning he created them male and female. Truth that marriage can only be defined as being between a man and a woman. And most importantly, the truth that Jesus is Lord. The Lordship of Christ rules over rich and over poor. The world, even our city, kicks against that truth, the truth that Jesus is Lord. But resistance is pointless. It's futile. Jesus is Lord, and he rules supreme over all. His kingdom is coming, and it will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven we should be of good cheer because eventually it will be done in all places, even in our own city here. Christ has promised so. This is why we don't have to wonder. It's not an if. It's only a when. Upon this rock, Jesus said, speaking of himself, the revelation that he is the Son of God, the Christ, Upon the rock who is Christ, his church is being built. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. No force in hell can stop what God has set in motion at the cross. And this is why we must not grow weary in doing good. If we do not faint, the promise is in due season we shall reap. Now that, that due season may not be in the time we want to see it. It may not be in our day, it may be in the day of our children, or the day of our grandchildren, or our great-grandchildren, but that day is coming, sooner or later, because God has promised it. Those who profess, those who profess to be rich, those who feel no spiritual poverty or need for the Lord, as full as they may believe they are, will be sent away empty. This is why we need to stand for truth, it's why we need to pray and give witness through our words and through our deeds because the light of Christ is the only hope for those who are in darkness. He fills those who are hungry. So hunger for righteousness. For Christ has promised that He will fill you with good things if you hunger for those things. Trust in the Lord. Hunger for Him and you shall be filled. You shall be made rich beyond the measure of this world. That's what Mary realized. God had enriched her beyond anything this world could give her. We know Mary was poor, but in her lowly state, God made her rich beyond imagination. He filled 
her hunger for him and gave to her a fullness that can never be diminished. He will fill you also as you hunger for his righteousness. And what he fills you with will never be diminished. Final two verses, Luke chapter 1, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. What God promised from the beginning, he performed. God promised the coming of a Savior 4,000 years later, that Savior was born. But God came to his people countless times before Jesus was born. This is something we need to take hold of. We need to grasp this. He has come to his people countless times since he was born. He comes to save. He comes to deliver. He comes to crush the head of the serpent under your feet. And he does it in all manner of ways. He has helped his servant Israel. Who is this servant Israel. Israel is the people of God. Israel has always defined the people of God, not by their ethnicity, but by their faith. Israel is the church, and the church is Israel. This is not replacement. This is reality. This has been true from the beginning, even before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In remembrance of his mercy, his loving kindness, he has helped his servant Israel. He is still helping her today. He is still helping you today. Just as he spoke to the fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. That seed is Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, and we are heirs according to the promise, the very promise that Mary mentions here. He has helped his servant Israel by saving and delivering and redeeming his servant from sin and death and eternal separation from God. Not only that, but he has secured for his servant Israel, for his body, the church, that's you and that's me, All the promises of God. He has provided that help and made sure his promise in Christ. And he has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal that that promise cannot be revoked. Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Not to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Christ is the seed the promise was made to. And then Paul writes in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. The word applies to you. The song applies to you. You are Israel. You are God's seed in Jesus Christ. In saving you in Christ, he has helped you. He has fulfilled his promises in ways beyond what you and I could possibly imagine. It doesn't matter how hard, how dark our life may get. What God has given to us in Christ is beyond anything we can imagine. By his grace, you are his servant. By his grace, he has saved you. It is the gift of God. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of your works, lest you should boast. We have nothing to boast in except the cross and except God's grace. Praise God. His mercies are new every morning. That's what the Bible says. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. He alone is our help. He alone is our hope. He alone is our Savior. And He alone is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. There is no other. Fear not. He will come to you just as he has through the ages, for he is our help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Merry Christmas. Jesus is Lord. He has come. Fear not. He will come again. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. We come to this table to proclaim his covenant. We come to this table 
to renew the covenant, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, to proclaim the body, and to proclaim the blood that has given us this sure covenant. So Christian, as you trust in Jesus, as you are counted his covenant members, come to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's stand and I'm going to give you your charge. Advent is the celebration of Christ's coming. Not only his birth, not only his return one day, but his coming. Mary's song is a song of hope. It's a song of trust, of faith. It is a song that proclaims the saving work of God that he has performed. He has helped his servant Israel. He is helping you today. Don't resist his help. Lean into it. Thank him for it and celebrate it. We are Christians. We do not serve a Savior who is absent, but our Savior is present with us. He comes to save. He comes to deliver and to heal and to help in our time of need. In fact, we live in need of Him always. Christ has been coming to His people since the creation of His people in the first man in the garden. And throughout Israel's history, He has come to His people Because Jesus does not come to us in a physical body does not mean he does not come to us. Christ lives in you by the Holy Spirit, and he is your hope of glory. Christ is our ever-present help in time of need. We could just say that he is our ever-present help. Whether we feel our need for him or not. Advent is the celebration of His coming, but there is no season to His coming to us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Merry Christmas. Jesus has come and He is not going anywhere. He has come to you in the Holy Spirit and by His grace He dwells in you and you dwell in Him. And we have more reason to celebrate than we know, not just at Advent, but every day. So be a people who know why and know how to celebrate His coming each and every day. For the world needs to see us. They need to see us celebrate Jesus the King. Not once, not twice, not three or four times a year, but every day in every way. In the good times and the bad times. In great light, And in great darkness, Jesus has no season. Merry Christmas. Jesus is Lord, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you.